today on CityCast Salt Lake. Last week, Utah got news it will receive a half a billion dollars from the federal government to generate hydrogen in the West Desert and pump it into underground salt caverns. To which I said, what? (laughs) But luckily, I know the person to ask. Brian Maffley, environmental reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune. Because apparently, this is a huge deal. It's Thursday, May 5th, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Brian, welcome to CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me, Ali. I have so many questions about this project. Like, I think a good place to start is just like, what? why is hydrogen so useful? I n- have never thought of it as an energy source. Maybe that's just naive of me. Well, it's, it's, it's what powers the sun, right? It's the most abundant element in the universe. When you burn it, it is emission-free. Uh, the only emission is water, right? However, producing hydrogen consumes a great deal of energy. You produce it by separating uh, water molecules into hydrogen and oxygen using a process called electrolysis, and it consumes large amounts of electricity. So if, if you're using coal-fired electricity to produce your hydrogen, and it's, it's, you can't really call it renewable, but if you can use solar or wind energy to, to produce your hydrogen, you can hang onto that hydrogen and burn it in a, in a, power, in a power plant, and now you've basically turned it into a battery. Um, and that's what's being proposed out in West, uh, West Desert of Utah, where a power plant operated by the Intermountain Power uh, Agency is um, being converted from coal to natural gas. And their plan is, is to actually mix hydrogen in with that natural gas. And voila, you have, um, you know, uh, an emission-free source of energy. Um, of course, you'll, you'll have emissions associated with the natural gas you burn in there. But for that hydrogen, it'll be technically emission-free, 100% clean energy. The state of Utah is receiving a half a billion dollar loan, of course, to basically start this experiment. And one of the things that's interesting to me just off the top about sort of the brass tacks of how this works is produce hydrogen and then pump it into these caves. Yeah, caverns caverns and they're salt yeah. caverns like so yeah why is that a perfect storm what's happening up by in delta utah is a, a nice convergence of four major factors that make this hydrogen project work the first is a power plant that's converting from coal to natural gas where hydrogen can be mixed in with that the other part is having transmission infrastructure to move the power to southern california that's in place too you have a lot of open land there for, for wind and solar production. Most of it's public land. You can, um, and then the other part are these massive salt formations that are right there that the state uh, trust lands office owns. They've acquired for the purpose of developing them for underground storage. And so what's happened over the years are companies have come in and used solution mining to hollow these formations out for the purpose of storing. And originally it was compressed air that, that didn't work out. Now they're storing refined petroleum products in there like jet fuel, but they, they can also be used for storing hydrogen. And so the new thought which came about maybe three or four years ago was let's use those, those caverns um, to store 
uh, hydrogen that can be burned in the new, the new and improved power plant that will go online in 2025. That's the idea. So this company that's involved with this, it, it, it's a massive investment uh, to, because they have to produce, they have to build a hydrogen production facility there. The salt caverns already, they're already hollowed out. They might have to hollow out additional capacity. And then you they need to build infrastructure to get the hydrogen from the caverns to the Intermountain Power Plant a few miles away. And this is, you know, this is kind of an experiment, but this is like the one place where it can really work, where you're using that, you know, hydrogen that is truly emission-free. Um, if you're using fossil fuels to produce your hydrogen, then it, you really don't get much of an environmental benefit with that. My understanding is that this project is the first of its kind in the nation. Is it the first of its kind ever? I don't know of anywhere else where this is being attempted, where, you know, where you're, hmm. where you're making hydrogen stored underground to be burned in a power plant. I, I just yeah. can't think of any other place in the world that's done that, done this, at least at this scale. And do you think this project is scalable? I think that's what they're, that's what the Department of Energy is banking on here is, can this help pave the way toward making renewable energy work? So the, the problem with wind and solar inter energy, as everybody knows, is it's intermittent. It all depends on what time of day or what the weather's doing. And that mm -hmm. might not correspond with when people need the power. The power has to be used the moment it's generated or stored in a battery. But if you can use your renewable energy to produce hydrogen that can then be stored to burn in a power plant, well, you've basically created what amounts to this massive underground battery. And that's the idea mm -hmm. here is you're producing renewable energy and storing it under, underground for use later in the day or the week to run in this power plant. In salt caves that are the size of the Empire State Building. <laughs> Probably bigger. Nature created the the salt formations, mm -hmm. but it was a lot of effort went into hollowing them out. It is an amazing thing. Do you think this, like, how do you, do you think this project has legs? Like, do you think this is because half a billion dollars is an enormous investment? To me, to me, that the Department of Energy putting in a hundred or five hundred million dollars is an indication that it has a lot of promise. I mean, at the end of the day, when we're when we're talking about the kind of big picture solutions to the climate crisis, it has to be big. It can't, it can't be, you know, a few hundred megawatts of power here and there, which is what, you know, which what the, the, the solar plants are. Okay. We, we, we've taken up 600 acres of land and we're producing a, a few hundred megawatts of energy. Well, we, we need to be thinking gigawatts, not megawatts. A project like this could point the way. It's not going to be the be all and end all. It, it, there aren't enough salt formations in the United States to, you know, store the amount of hydrogen that would be needed. Mm -hmm. But it's, it is, they potentially could be part of a, a bigger solution. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that it's happening in, in this, you know, red state like Utah where climate denial is yeah. extremely and depressingly common. And yet here it is happening here and in, you know, Beaver and Millard counties, two, two of the most conservative places in the country are now emerging as a hub of green energy innovation. Yeah. 
It's especially interesting to me because like I used to work in the environmental sector and we talk a lot in that in that like sort of environmental justice conservation space about just transition, which is basically like a framework that came out of the trade labor movement that is you know, around the idea of the transition away from extractive industries into regenerative industries and how can we be creating as many jobs as maybe we're losing when we shut down coal plants or, or cap them? And, and can that transition be, in effect, just? And yeah. this project feels like a just transition project. I agree. And I think that's one thing that gets lost in this whole jobs question about you know, addressing climate changes. Yeah, we're going to lose some some jobs in the coal sector, but what we forget are the jobs that are that are going to be gained elsewhere, and mm-hmm. and there will be jobs created in Miller County. And I and what's been puzzling to me, though, is you know Utah's coal country has been kind of upset with uh, this whole process. They're they're not pleased that this power plant that used to burn two or three million tons of um, Utah coal each year is now switching to uh, a product that may or may not get produced in Utah. This natural gas that it's going to burn is probably going to come from Wyoming, for example. However, the hydrogen will most definitely <laughs> come from Utah. Um, it'll be produced right next door through solar arrays. So it's, it's you know, yeah, change is hard. People are very proud of the coal country heritage in Utah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia associated with that industry. I think it's natural that that people um, would have misgivings about losing those jobs. However, um, there's a bigger picture here. These jobs will most likely be made up if we, if Utah can stay, you know, on the cutting edge of of on the renewable revolution. And, and it, it appears yeah. what I find so promising about this is that Utah is being handed a, uh, an amazing opportunity just because of a, the, you know, the quirks of its geography and, um, and they're turning this huge coal burning power plant into something that's going to be, you know, produce a lot less greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. I, I hope it could be an example for the rest of the West. When we talk about green energy projects, I think the ones that come to mind are wind, solar. How green is this energy project? The hydrogen portion will be 100% green if, in okay. fact, they pr- produce it with solar and, and wind energy. So if if that's the case, then, then the hydrogen being burned in that plant would truly be 100% emission-free. That is pretty remarkable. I'm curious, like, what do we know about the state's response to this? Because these are federal dollars that are coming in. And it feels like we kind of take a few steps forward, a few steps back when it comes to renewable energy in this state. Like, I think it was just a couple of years ago, the legislature rolled back the solar incentives. So it's I'm a little conflicted. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many mixed messages from the state's leadership, former Governor Herbert very enthusiastically endorsed this project when it was unveiled a couple of years ago at the uh, Energy Summit. However, some prominent members of the legislature have been extremely, I don't know, hostile toward Intermountain Power for switching off of coal. And if, and if Intermountain Power doesn't switch off of coal, this, this project has no legs. Um, you need to have a power plant nearby to burn this hydrogen. Otherwise, it doesn't make any economic sense. So there's... Definite 
mixed messages coming from the state's political leadership on this project. And plus, I, I'm going to be frank with you. There is a lot of folks in uh, elected leaders in Utah who think climate change is A, not a big threat, or B, not human cause, or C, nothing we can do about it. So it's almost like, like it, if you think that way, then there, there's no point in, in doing a project like this. Mm-hmm. And, and people are pretty upfront about, about their climate deni- denialism. Is there anything else I should ask you about this project that we need to know in order to understand it? Yeah, like who's going to benefit here? Um, and one of the big beneficiaries will probably be the Utah School uh, Institutional Trust Lands Administration, which oversees the land where these salt caverns are. Mm-hmm. Sitla, commonly known as Sitla. That agency acquired the land where those salt formations are many years ago with the idea of developing them into something for underground storage. Mm -hmm. By participating in this project, a cut of whatever revenue is generated will come back to the school trust. So a lot of the revenue generated from this project will wind up, you know, benefiting taxpayers in Utah and indirectly or directly somehow. What is the relationship between CITLA, if you wouldn't mind in brief, like, and how our schools are funded? Because I think it's fascinating. Yeah, well, sit with the, the revenue that Sitla generates is put into a uh, a trust fund. It has just grown astronomically in the last 20 years. It's got like I over $3 billion in it now. Revenue generated off that trust fund is uh, distributed to the school districts that supplements what they get, you know, from the state. I think the last, you know, round of funding was $100 million, which is really a kind of a, a drop in the bucket, but it but it's something. I mean, when I look at this project and think about what chances it has for success, the fact that this is Sitla land is sort of an indicator to me that they're good because (laughs) Sitla, like you said, not known for choosing clean or green energy above all, known for choosing sort of profit above all. And some of the projects that they've been in support of in the past, like Book Cliffs Highway, it's you into Basin Railroad. Like these are projects that are about extraction and funding and tar, extraction. Tar, let's not forget tar sands mining and tar sands yeah. mining. Yeah. And so their attachment gives it, I don't want to say more viability, but it certainly like raises my eyebrows. Well, well, Ali, you know, let's keep in mind that they're not even allowed to consider the, the environmental or social benefits when they make their land use decisions. It's all about what's going to make the most amount of money uh, for the trust fund. It's probably got some economic viability. Um, but at, at, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we won't know until, until it actually gets built and up and running. Yeah. And when will that be? When will we start to get a sense? Yeah. Um, the conversion to natural gas at the Intermountain Power Plant has to be accomplished by 2025. So by 2025, it's it's hoped that the hydrogen would be available to burn in that plant. It'll be fun to watch. No doubt. I'm excited for us. I hope that, I mean, like, it's exciting. I even hate to say that it's, like, exciting. But, I mean, just seeing if if... Renewable energy is becoming a part of just the standard economic argument. Then that's a pl- that's certainly a place. It feels like a gain. Yeah. So um, yeah, will certainly be interesting to witness it and 
see see Utah on the cutting edge here. I never would have thought it. I got to be honest in terms of renewables. Well, I hope it doesn't go belly up. I mean, it, and, and if it does go belly up, you, you know, it's going to be used as a big strike against the Biden administration uh, for, you know, throwing half a billion dollars at a boondoggle. So, um, it, yeah, so the administration probably has a, a lot more writing on it than the rest of us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me on your awesome show. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Brian. Thanks for your reporting on this and for helping us understand exactly what it means. A little news before we go. You may have heard about this when the study came out, but in 2018, the Urban Indian Health Institute found that Salt Lake is ranked among the top 10 cities for reported cases of missing and murdered indigenous relatives. According to the report, Salt Lake currently has 24 cases. The study lays bare dysfunction at all levels of government in reporting and investigating these cases, which is why that number 24 is almost certainly a steep undercount. Two years ago, a task force was created in Utah to investigate this ongoing crisis. Of course, the pandemic significantly slowed their work. But during the 2022 legislative session, $135,000 was allocated for the task force. They're traveling to all nine recognized tribal communities in Utah to research where and how the state can make improvements to its criminal justice and social service systems to prevent violence against indigenous people. The local organization Restoring Ancestral Winds was heavily involved in the creation of this task force. Their work goes deep in addressing the systemic causes of violence against indigenous people. And you can find them on Instagram at Restoring Ancestral Winds. Today is National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous People. It's a day of remembering, honoring, and taking action. If you can, wear red today in solidarity. And consider financial support for organizations like Restoring Ancestral Winds. We've talked a lot about decreased access to abortion health care on the pod this week. And I think that crisis is in direct intersection with the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous people. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.